Good morning, church. So very good to see you. Like I tell you every week, I love and appreciate you so very much. In 1960, Abilene Christian College, like most colleges supported by Churches of Christ at the time, would not allow African-American students to attend school there. And that year, in 1960, preacher and professor named Carl Spain got up and preached at the annual lectureship. And that sermon that he delivered that day, it sent ripples through the school and through our fellowship because he rebuked the racism and the segregation that had been plaguing the church for so long. Here's one of the things that he said in that powerful sermon. He said, God forbid that churches of Christ and schools operated by Christians shall be the last stronghold of refuge for socially sick people who have Nazi illusions about the master race. Can you imagine the courage that it would take to stand up at that time in that generation and rebuke sin so clearly, so courageously to call out what was wrong and to help set right the things that had been disordered. And every generation, every generation, the the issues may change over time, but every generation has things about which they are confused, lies that they have believed, sin that they have engaged in. And every generation needs Christians who will courageously stand up and help people understand what's right and what's wrong, what's truth and what's a lie, what's good and what's sinful. Every generation needs Christians who will stand up and help to expose lies and speak truth. We've been going through the book of Acts, and the book of Acts, we have the apostles who in that first generation of the church were those men who stood up and courageously told the truth, courageously spoke truth, courageously exposed lies, regardless of the consequences to themselves. And every generation of the church needs people like that. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Acts chapter 5 for just a few minutes. And this is the second time that Luke describes that the apostles have been arrested and dragged before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the the religious, the Jewish religious leaders of Israel, and they are telling them once again, stop talking about Jesus. And they bring them before them, verse 27, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered. Now, before we read what they answered, just imagine what that would be like, being surrounded by the most powerful and respected religious leaders of the time, 
who have arrested you, who are angry with you, have the power to punish you, who had just helped to orchestrate the death of your rabbi, the Messiah, and now you're on trial before them. Peter and the apostles on trial before them. Imagine standing in their shoes, and here's how they respond. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. This truth had to be preached. The lies that people believed had to be exposed. Why? So that people could be saved. And again, in every generation, people believe lies. In every generation, people are deceived. In every generation, we need people who will stand up and who will clearly and courageously speak the truth and expose lies. Why? So that people can be saved, so that they can be set free from sin, so that they can be set free from foolishness, so that they can be set free from the lies and the deceit that have enslaved them. And the apostles spoke this truth. The apostles were these courageous people, but the apostles weren't going to be around forever. And so they knew that their absence was coming, and they appointed evangelists. And those evangelists went out and appointed elders and shepherds in every local church. Every local church needed shepherds, needed elders who would continue to bravely, courageously, clearly speak the truth and expose lies. So if you have your Bible, again, we're going to be in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. And here the Apostle Paul is writing to the evangelist Titus. And Titus is living and working and ministering on the island of Crete. And he's telling him every community, every city where there's a church needs elders so that this can happen. Look at Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, we kind of stop there for just a second. Maybe you've heard these, these qualifications before. Maybe you've heard dozens and dozens of sermons. If you've been in the church for a long time, you may have heard these over and over again. But I, I want us to not necessarily just focus on the thing, but for me to understand and for you to understand why you, you, not not necessarily the person sitting beside you, not just the church as a whole, but why you personally, why I personally need shepherds and elders. This, this is Paul laying out these 
qualifications and, and saying, this is what these shepherd elders look like. These are the men that you should pick and choose and appoint to shepherd and lead and teach the church. We'll talk more about this family qualifications and why that's important next week, but sometimes we just kind of stop here, don't we? If you've kind of been around for a while, these are the, the qualifications we tend to focus on. Husband of one wife, their children are believers or they're faithful and they, they're not rebellious and insubordinate. We kind of stop there and just focus on those. And again, we'll come back and talk about those next week. But I want you to listen to this part where he says in verse 7, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He paints this picture that these shepherds, these elders, are the overseers or stewards. That idea is like a, a household manager. Like a, a wealthy person would have somebody who was in charge of his household to sort of oversee all the things that go on there. And again, we'll talk more about that next week. But Paul is, is really specific. This is what these kind of men look like. The, these are the kind of men that the flock needs. These are the kind of elders that every Christian is going to need in every generation, in every community, in every city, in every local church. These are the kind of men that every Christian is going to need. Men who aren't bullies, who aren't drunkards, who aren't greedy. Men who are hospitable. Men who love good Men who are self-controlled, who are upright, who are holy, who are disciplined. And then he says in verse 9, this kind of man must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So he says that these kind of men are those who hold firm to, to good, healthy teaching, and they know what's right, and they hold on to what's right. Why? So that they can do what? So that they can give instruction. The word there is parakaleo, which means to, literally, it's a word, a compound that sounds like bring somebody alongside. It, it, it means to encourage, to exhort not just to, to teach like a lecture, but to encourage someone, to urge someone. These are the kind of men that they know what's good, and they know what's true, and they know what's pure, and they know what's holy and lovely, and they're not confused about what's right and what's true and what's good and what's noble, and they, they bring other people alongside of them, and they encourage them, and they exhort them, and they teach them. And they're able to rebuke those who contradict it. Now that, that's where we get a little bit uncomfortable, isn't it? Like rebuke. Nobody wants to be re rebuked. Who likes to be rebuked? I'll tell you, the truth is we all should like to be rebuked. 
Because rebuke means, rebuke means to expose a lie. To expose a lie. To take a lie and to, to show people why it's a lie. And do you know why that's important? Because everyone who has ever believed a lie thought he was believing the truth. Let me say that again. Everyone who has ever believed a lie thought he was believing the truth. And that's why we should accept rebuke, love rebuke. Because when somebody is rebuking us, they're trying to show us why the lie that we believe is the truth is actually a lie. And elders, shepherds, are the kind of men who not only hold firm to the truth and they believe the truth and they know the truth and they try to teach and encourage other people in this truth, but they also rebuke those who contradict the truth. People who have been convinced that a lie is actually true. These shepherds, these elders say, no, that's wrong. That's not the truth. That's not in keeping with sound doctrine. The church needed people like that in the 1860s, in the 1960s, Today, in the first century, in every generation, the church has desperately needed those who will say, that's not in keeping with the gospel. Rebuke those who contradict the truth, who contradict sound teaching. Paul knew that Titus' number one job as an evangelist was to make sure that every church had plenty of men who would fulfill this role. Why? Because, verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now again, that sounds really harsh, doesn't it? Rebuke these false teachers, silence them. Now that sounds really harsh that these shepherds, these elders, one of their primary tasks and primary roles is not just to teach the truth, but to rebuke people who contradict the truth, to silence false teachers. But I want us to see how this is an act of compassion. Paul says that these false teachers are upsetting, upsetting whole families. Now, when we use the word upset, sometimes we mean like it made them up, upset, it made them angry, it put them in a bad mood. That, that's not what Paul means. This word upset means to, to ruin, to turn them upside down. Like you might upset a boat and ruin it, destroy it. Paul says these, these false teachers, these empty talkers, these insubordinate men that are speaking lies, they're ruining families. They're destroying people's lives. They're destroying people's salvation. And you need to make sure that every single church has plenty of men who will stand up and who will rebuke those who believe and teach Lies, who will silence these empty talkers, these deceivers. This is an act of compassion and mercy 
and love. And, and it's, it's easy for us, I suppose, for us to say, yes, that's right, amen. I'd, I'd take an amen, that'd be okay. But, you know, it, it's easy for us to say amen, right, to that idea that some people need to be rebuked. Some people believe lies, and they need to be told that's a lie, and you need to stop believing that. It's really easy for all of us to amen that. But what if the person who believes the lie is me? What if the person who believes the lie is you? Because every time we believed a lie, we thought we were believing the truth. I don't do this a whole lot, but raise your hand if you've ever believed a lie. Raise your hand if you ever believed a lie, right? Okay, yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not alone, right? We've, we've believed lies, but in that moment that you believed a lie, you didn't think it was a lie. You thought it was the truth, didn't you? You were firmly convinced that whatever that person told you that you now understand was a lie at the moment you thought it was the truth. And so you're probably thankful for whatever transpired or whoever it was who had the courage to tell you that thing you believe is the truth is actually a lie. You've been deceived. You've been fooled. This isn't true. And then when you come out of that lie and your eyes are open and you realize, oh, wow, what I thought was the truth was actually a lie and now I understand the truth, you're thankful, aren't you? For people who had the courage to correct you, for people who had the courage to rebuke you, for people who had the compassion to teach you. And that's why we need elders with the compassion to both instruct and rebuke us. We need elders, we need shepherds with the compassion to instruct and rebuke us. Not just us collectively, and not just us like, yeah, that person over there, I know that person over there needs somebody to instruct and rebuke them. I'm not talking about them, I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. Because there's going to be a point in our lives where we believe something that's not true. Because the culture is moving in a certain direction. Because the culture has shaped us in a certain way. Because everybody seems to say, you know, when we were teenagers, we said, everybody's doing it. Adults are no different, right? We, we do things because everybody's doing it. We think things because everybody's thinking it. We say things because everybody's saying it. And we need shepherds. We need elders with the compassion and the courage and the clarity to instruct us and even rebuke us when we believe things that aren't true. And that's why I'm so thankful for the shepherds that we have and for the shepherds that I believe God is going to continue to add to our number. So at this time, I'm going to ask Brother Mike Willoughby to join me on the stage, and we are going to continue to discuss their current role and as we add additional shepherds. Thank you, Brother. Hugging with the lapel mic doesn't work very well, I guess. Oh, Mike, thank you for doing this. Let's, let's start with a really simple question. Sorry, nope, you have something. Before we start. Yes, sir. Can I tell you how much we love and appreciate you? That means a lot. Not just you, y'all. <laughs> you and Holly, Malachi and Noah, we're so grateful you're here. Thank you, brother. That means a lot. Well, when you became a shepherd... 
or well, let's start with how long you've been a shepherd. How long have you been an elder here at McDermott? So uh, 2008, uh, Steve and I uh, both at the same time were considering joining this eldership in the spring of 2008. So 14 years, um, and I think Steve would agree those 14 years have, have flown by. Maybe not the last two, but the first one <laughs> flown by. I've been saying we need to count the last two years like dog years or something, you know, add, multiply them by seven or something. Yeah, absolutely. So what was going on in your, I'm sure a lot has changed in 14 years. So what was going on in your life when you were first approached about serving as a shepherd? So some of you may remember 2008. Uh, 2008 was a really interesting year. In the spring of 2008, uh, it was an election year first, and those are fun. Um, and uh, we started hearing about this housing bubble thing kind of early in the year. But, but I think most people felt like 2008 was starting out really good. You know, we had sort of 9-11 in our past and all the things that kind of brought that, uh, that came along with that. Um, my family, so we were graduating our oldest son who had decided to go to ACU, which made us really happy. And our middle son, Matthew, was headed off to high school and he was looking forward to playing football in the, in the fall. Uh, our youngest son was flying low on the radar, like youngest kids do sometimes, and just enjoying uh, life. Uh, I was um, helping to run the company that I'm currently the CEO of, so I was the number two guy. And we needed a really good year that year. We had had some rough years, and so it started off like it was looking to be uh, a really good year. I was a deacon here. I was the deacon of adult education, and I really enjoyed uh, that job. And... Uh, you know, we, we uh, had a lot going on, right? Raising kids and doing church and being involved in business. Um, and although we wouldn't know it in the spring, uh, and, and I think both Steve and I, as we talked about joining, we felt like it was a really good time to join because things seemed to be stable, right? We, we had the Next Generation Now campaign that was in the past, and, with that, and the congregation responded really generously to that. And so we were thinking about the building that we were going to put right over there, and we thought, this is a good time to join. It's, it's stable. But by the end of 2008, uh, we had the start of the Great Recession. Uh, we had uh, you know, a fairly tumultuous uh, election, although nothing by comparison to what we've had recently. And um, we were starting a, what ended up being a two-year search for our next preaching minister. And so Steve and I talk about that we felt like we were kind of tossed in the deep end, except for the fact that we joined these other four men that brought us along in such an amazing way. And both of us felt like, even though there were some trials that began at the end of 2008, that we were useful and helpful and part of a group that was um, equipped. Hmm. I keep thinking about the men that over the next few weeks will be approached by someone in the congregation saying, I think you should be one of our next shepherds. So what was your reaction when you were first approached about serving? With all of that stuff that was going on in your world and in your life, what was your reaction to that request? Well, first off, it was an honor to be asked. And it was a compliment. And I think it's, it's okay to actually take it as a compliment. But also, it pretty quickly turned into a bit of anxiety and just thinking about you know, all the, that I thought went with being asked to be an elder and Crystal and I talked about it a lot. It wasn't an easy decision uh, for me to accept that call. First off, I was already busy with all that stuff I just listed, but beyond just being busy, 
we had some things that we really struggled with that we thought you know needed prayer and needed some discussion and really the, the biggest one frankly was what would it be like to serve as an elder with kids still at home mm-hmm. you know so one was headed off to college but two were still you know in their teenage years and and I'll tell you Wes that in the end that was actually easy for us to deal with because we looked at a church that had been so compassionate towards the preacher's kids and the elder's kids, the PKs and the EKs that the church already had. Mm -hmm. And we saw that not only did the church not put a burden on them and make it harder to just be kids, but they actually nurtured them and they embraced them. And so for us, it it helped just to put that aside. And I hope that you have experienced that same thing here with kids at home. So then the next thing was really sort of coming to grips with what that word means, that word elder. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, sort of by definition, it means older guy. Mm-hmm. And I was 44, right? And, and, and my sort of thought was that, you know, it, it, these need to be the gray-haired guys, the ones that had, you know, years, right? And although I certainly fit the bill now, <laughs> back then at 44, you know, I didn't feel like necessarily I was old enough. Mm-hmm. But the old enough excuse didn't really work because Quentin and uh, Bentley were already joining, had joined in their 40s, and, and they had kids at home too. So, you know, I had an example that was out there uh, that really helped with that part too. And so we kind of looked at what is the Bible really saying about that word elder, right? And I read a couple books that were helpful too. Uh, they smell like sheep. Lynn Ashton has two. Anybody who's thinking about being an elder, I encourage you to read those two books. They're so helpful. And age is important. It's important. But we came away thinking that, that mileage is actually more important. It isn't necessarily the model year. It's really what uh, mileage have you put on? What journey have you traveled? And a biblical elder is an, an, a man who has experienced Jesus Christ in a transformative way. And that the, the challenges that come with life, and there, there are many, mm-hmm. that they've learned from the trials and the imperfections and the mistakes and the successes. Mm-hmm. And in a Romans 5, James 1 kind of way, that those experiences have led to patience and to good character, and most importantly, to a sense of hope for the future. Mm-hmm. And we came to the conclusion that even back in 2008, you know, for me, there were those experiences. I had experienced Jesus in a transformative way. And so in the end, even at 44, I felt equipped to mm-hmm. answer the call. Yeah. Well, you, and you mentioned, I'm glad that you did, trials, mistakes, struggles. Obviously, shepherds are not perfect people. So how have you, how have you found that your trials and mistakes and struggles have actually helped you to do what we're talking about today and in instructing and even correcting people that need it? Well, first of all, I'm really thankful that you used the example of Peter mm-hmm. to, a, to sort of introduce that thought. Because um, first off, Peter calls us fellow elders, which I find both intimidating and also uh, hopeful because of the man that, that Peter was. Um, you know, Peter was, he was inspired and he was courageous and he stood up on that big stage that you were talking about with the Sanhedrin, which was so amazing. We know that he walked with Jesus and he was transformed from being a really imperfect man to somebody who, who loved Jesus and loved people. 
But he was also very sort of publicly imperfect, mm -hmm. right? Before Pentecost and even after Pentecost. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm really happy that you used the Carl Spain example because Peter also had to stand up against racism, right? Mm -hmm. He went to see Cornelius and then he had to go back to that church in Jerusalem and he had to stand up and say to the circumcision party, no, this is an integrated church. This is a church that welcomes all. And he went back to Antioch, and he was part of creating that, that amazing integrated church in the first century. And then he stumbled, right? right? Yeah. He self-segregated when the people came up from Jerusalem and started to give everybody a hard time. Mm -hmm. And Paul had to hold him accountable and say, Peter, this isn't the way it's supposed to be done. This isn't the way that elders are supposed to be, mm -hmm. right? And... To me, the, the way that the Bible records, not only Peter, but all of our Bible heroes with their flaws and their imperfections and the hard lessons that they learned, that's just so helpful for me. Yeah. Because I'm the same way, right? Mm -hmm. I stumble and I make mistakes. And you know, Richard last Sunday says, we're, we're not looking for perfect men. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think we're actually looking for imperfect men that have been transformed by Jesus. Yeah and are ready to sort of use that for, for good. Mm -hmm. Now, that was about Peter, so you wanted to know about <laughs> me. I have a little list here because I'm going to actually have to use it for this part. Mm -hmm. First off, I'm grateful because, for Peter because you know, my ministry, my ability to be an elder is not despite my imperfections and mistakes, but powered by them to an extent. Plenty of shoot-myself-in-the-foot moments. <laughs> um, I've talked in the past about my intervention, um, that in 1994, I was on the wrong path. And uh, I think God used a, an experience to put me on the right path. Um, for those of you that are interested, it's the meekness of Paul. It's still on our website from October of 2019, when you forced me to teach a lesson <laughs> on, on Paul, and it turned into uh, talking about that time. But if it wasn't for that intervention that occurred, I wouldn't be sitting here today. Mm -hmm. Maybe not even in this building. The arrogance and pride and insensitivity that I had at that time needed to be worked out. But it gave me an opportunity to use that to teach. And I, I teach from that experience uh, every year at uh, ACU Leadership Summit to college seniors. And I taught that here back in October of 2019. I know what it's like to be accidentally introduced to illicit material when I was 12 years old, which created a 20-year struggle for me. But I also know what it's like to have victory in Jesus over that experience. I don't teach about that in front of college students, but it is a resource for people who struggle. We know some of the lessons that life just brings you. You talked about it last Sunday, that Life is hard and, and things happen. And we know what it's like to lose people we love dearly. I preached two funerals for my grandparents, two for hers and one for Crystal's uh, dad. We know what it's like to have a child in the hospital with severe injuries. Same child twice. Mm. We know what it's like to have a praying community that's praying for healing. Mm -hmm. And we know what it's like for that healing to happen. You still got both legs and both arms, mm -hmm. so we're happy. We know what it's like to have an adult child suffer infidelity and the destruction of his marriage, 
And we know what it's like to share that burden with our shepherds and with our church family and to receive healing. As most of you know, we know what it's like to suffer with addiction in our family and the destruction and despair that comes with addiction. But we also know the power of sharing that burden with the church. And we know the comfort from sitting in Dave's office to get godly counsel and intercession. And that's a personal reference, not just a professional reference. If I send you to Dave, we know what it's like. We also know within our family the pain that comes from pregnancy or birth not going as planned. But we know the joy of welcoming another generation into our family with the birth of our our new grandson, Sawyer. We know the joy of bringing an amazing daughter into our family with our son's second marriage. And I preach more weddings than funerals, which is a blessing. We know the trial of working to bring family and business and church through a pandemic and the joy in coming out on the other side with strong family, strong business, and strong church. And there's so many blessings and trials that have equipped us and continue to equip us for ministry. And here's the thing I want you to hear. Each and everything that we've been through, my big intervention to every trial I just listed and more that I didn't list, every single one, we've had the blessing of having at least one shepherd and his wife who could minister to us and teach us from a place of empathy. Crystal and I are so blessed to have that. And I think we're blessed to have our experiences to help us teach and minister. Coming alongside is just what elders do. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's what today is all about, is about that coming alongside, that teaching, that instructing, even correcting at times. So how have you found effective ways to make that happen as an elder and a shepherd? I'm really glad earlier you said that It's not just about instruction. Mm -hmm. It's not just about providing information. It it is about that. Mm -hmm. The sound doctrine is important, and teaching the Bible stories and the lessons from the Bible is really important. But I also think that when you look at the Bible, the first time you run across that word teach, it's actually when God is telling Moses that he was going to help Moses to speak the words that need to be spoke. And... Moses was a hesitant shepherd, mm-hmm. right? He's in the burning bush and he's saying, I don't want to do that. And God's saying, I'm going to be there to help you, right? Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. So hesitant shepherds about teaching, probably look at that example. Mm-hmm. But the next time that you hear teach, it's actually in the Shema. It's in, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I'll, I'll read just a little bit of it because I think it really gets to the point about what that kind of teaching looks like. It says, these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. There shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That first impression of that kind of teaching isn't that classroom setting. It isn't a lecture. The teaching in the Shema sounds more like mentoring or discipling or coaching, which is when I think about teaching from an elder's perspective, I think of words more like coach, counsel, correct. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a lot more about walking along or coming alongside. And and that's actually the example of Jesus as well, right? Mm -hmm. The teaching that Jesus did was so much about walking on the path and being with those disciples and pouring into them. Mm -hmm. I mean, he had the big stage moments like sitting at the Sermon of the Mount or feeding the 5,000 or sitting in the boat 
Peter next to him, mm -hmm. teaching all those people. But it was actually more about those one-on-one -on -one sessions, that you know, special intimate time, mm -hmm. sitting with a woman by the well you know, and teaching her. So some of us elders feel comfortable in that big stage kind of uh, format. Some of us are comfortable in a discussion group or a small group setting. Some of us are more comfortable coaching, counseling, and correcting in a one-on-one -on -one setting. Mm -hmm. But all of us, and any prospective elder, are called to share our wisdom gained from the Bible, gained from our experiences, gained from our mistakes and our stumbles, and most importantly, to share the profound experience that we've had with Jesus Christ in our lives. Mm -hmm. And it looks more to me like the Shema. Stage fright, stage fright isn't an excuse because the best teaching isn't actually mm -hmm. on stage. Yeah. It's one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah. But I know that every single elder that we have is equipped by God to coach and counsel and correct. Mm -hmm. Because teaching is just what elders do. Yeah. And speaking of teaching, I know we're running out of time, but... but Teaching isn't just about words, is it? It's, a, it's about lifestyle. So what do you hope that people see when they look at the lives of our elders? First off, I, I think we have a, a simple saying that we use a lot, which is you need to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. Mm -hmm. Talk the talk is important, right? Instructions and, and sound doctrine is important, but actions speak louder than words. And I think Francis of Assisi maybe is attributed with this saying that says, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words, mm -hmm. which is just a way to say you need to be teaching with the way you respond to life and the things that you do. When I think about my spiritual heroes, I learned more from, from them than anything about the way that they lived mm -hmm. and the way that they responded more than what they said. I actually can't remember a whole lot my grandfather said to me mm -hmm. about uh, truth or the Bible or instruction, but I can remember a lot about what he did and how he lived. I also think that confession is really powerful for individuals, but it's also powerful for congregations. And here's some confession. Last week you mentioned the trial of the last two years, and I know you and the other ministers were, were there with us every step of the way, so you know the last two years have been challenging. It stretched us as coaches and counselors a lot. Uh, we spent hours and hours every week on Zoom calls making decisions and responding to crisis and recording content. But it's not the same way that we would have done things normally. Mm -hmm. We lost the personal touch that's so important with shepherds, and, and we grieve that. Mm -hmm. We grieve that two years that we didn't have that same kind of shepherding that we had become used to. We definitely learned tough lessons about trial and how trial can lead to patience and character and hope. Mm -hmm. And I believe that when 11 shepherds, and I'm including John and Mike in that, when 11 shepherds can make it through that kind of trial and come out the other side with more unity, yeah. more love, and more hope, that God's teaching a lesson there. Mm -hmm. That said we would have undoubtedly done some things differently with the benefit of hindsight. Mm -hmm. That's just the way life is. Mm -hmm. but there was a lot of uncertainty and just weirdness about that 2020 time period. And despite our best intentions, many have suffered and are still suffering. 
And sometimes we just miss the mark because we're imperfect and the situation was very unusual. We owe an apology to those that we let down. So if there's anyone here today that is suffering because you didn't have your needs met, we're sorry and we ask for forgiveness. And if there's anybody here that the relationship is broken because of this two-year time period and because we weren't able to do the things that we wanted to do every time, we seek reconciliation. What I know is that, and it's part of this invitation that we're about to offer, is that sharing a burden is lifting a burden. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are probably burdens here that need to be shared. Mm -hmm. And we do that with this invitation where we say, if you have a burden on your heart, if you're struggling with something, if you're dealing with the impact of your own mistakes, or if you're dealing with the impact of just life, your congregation is here to share in that, and your shepherds are here to share in that, whether it's here in this invitation in front of your congregation or in the prayer room that's waiting. And I know that every single one of your elders is ready and equipped because of the life experience they have and the transforming of power in Jesus to help you to come alongside and walk with you. So if it's okay, that invitation is here for you now. If there's anything that we can do to serve you, be reconciled to you, to receive your forgiveness at this time, that's what we're here for right now.